0: Hello, everybody. Um, Thank you so much for inviting me, Tina. Um, It's a a pleasure to be here. Um, I am a little bit tired, so forgive me. I'm really jet-lagged and haven't really been sleeping since I arrived. Um, What I'm going to talk about today are interconnected ideas linking fashion and sustainability. And my hope is that, in a small way, what I talk about will, will seed and germinate ideas in your own minds, works, lives, whatever it is. And that hopefully you'll take something away from this that can begin to affect change in what you do. So before I begin, I just want to ask you to take a moment and reflect Think about a garment that you've got in your wardrobe at home that you feel connects you with someone else. Who is that person? And how does it make you feel? Maybe you've got a garment in your wardrobe that helps you feel connected to nature. What is it? And why the link? For me, these memories, these feelings, these values, they're very engaging and they speak to us deeply. They're evidence that sustainability in fashion is possible. What I'm going to talk about is a type of fashion that designs for these feelings, these values. What I've sometimes described as fashion that helps us flourish. But let's face it, that's not where we are now. Precious few garments hanging from the rails in the high street show us that this is possible. Fashion production and consumption is, for the most part, not for sustainability, but largely against it. Just a, a sidetrack, slightly, about what I mean by sustainability. For me it's a fusion of two things. It's a fusion of natural integrity and human well-being. So it's a a heady combination of respect and restraint in material use, but also about people, connections, well-being and lives. Okay, so there are lots of issues that I'm sure you're all aware of linking fashion and sustainability, and I'm just going to race through them at the beginning now. Perhaps one of the the things that people start when they're on this journey of uncovering what these issues are, they start by by looking at cotton frequently. And of course, damaging agricultural practices come up time and time again when people look at natural fibre cultivation, particularly for cotton. So growing cotton uses large quantities of pesticides and synthetic fertilisers, vast amounts of water, it's about 8,000 litres per kilo of cotton. Um, And generally they're cultivated in large farms with no crop variety. The effect is to reduce the fertility of the soil, create water pollution, damage diversity of plant and animal species, you get the picture, so on and so forth. Of course, there's pollution, polluting and resource-intensive manufacture, including consumption of synthetic chemicals, petrochemical resources, pollution from the production of synthetics and regenerated fibres, large water consumption for natural and synthetic and regenerated fibres, and so forth. Another key issue that perhaps sometimes misses radars is the exploitation of garment workers who experience labor abuses, poverty wages, excessive working hours, forced overtime, lack of job security, denial of trade union rights. And in recent years, working conditions have been forced ever lower in what's sometimes called a race to the bottom. As manufacturers compete on price, particularly on reducing the price, for a place in the supply chain of big, High street retailers and brands. Then, of course, there's the very damaging effects of fashion imagery and trends on us. The drive to constantly renew ourselves in the light of changing trends feeds short-term thinking and psychological insecurity. And fashion imagery is linked to body issues, serious medical conditions like anorexia, for example. And in the UK recently, there was a study that showed that anorexia is nearly as common in young men as in young women. Then we move on. Passive consumers. People follow the trends prescribed by industry. They're ill-informed about and very distant from the process of making and designing clothes. And they lack the skills to do anything about it. And then excess and wastefulness linked to consumerism, which is perhaps the most pernicious issue and is at the root of lots of the unsustainability of the sector. We meet our desire for pleasure, for new experiences, status, identity formation, through the buying of more products than we need, many of which are clothes. In the UK, over the last four years, there's been a rise by a third in the amount that people buy in terms of clothes, so I think it's—I think it's about 32 items per year, is the average one. Um, and of course, this is a huge amount, and it's just growing and growing. I don't know. I, I believe you don't have Primark here, but this is a classic scene. This is on London's Oxford Street, the big sort of shopping street in London, and Primark where these women have been buying um, is an incredibly cheap store where you know, t-shirts are $2 sort of thing. And people literally buy in bags and bags full. And then a lot of what they buy, they never wear. But of course, because it's so cheap, they just buy several in different colors. So there's a little dispute that fashion is part of the sustainability problem. But the good news is that there's been lots of activity in recent years. Lots of people working to reduce the negative effects of what's going on. Okay, you start very simply by substituting one fibre for another. Things like organic cotton, low chemical cotton, fair trade fibre offer really important benefits over conventional varieties. Then there's newish fibers like lyocell, which offer a natural substitution for, for fibers like viscose. Viscose is quite damaging. Lyocell, which is also based on wood pulp, in this case eucalyptus, um, is a much cleaner fibre. And then there are some sort of questionable fibers. I only included this because people frequently ask about bamboo is it good um, for the environment? And my answer would generally be no. Um, because while bamboo grows very readily and doesn't use pesticides in production, it's just the source material for the viscose process. So 99.9% of bamboo fabric available is actually bamboo viscose, it's just a viscose fabric, and viscose is a damaging process. So if you do want to use bamboo, ask for it through the lyocell process, through the, uh, the tencell process, um, that would be much better. So there's lots of innovation that's going on in, uh, in factories, in dye and chemical labs. There's been new innovation in dye chemicals, new processes that now merge several sequences together to save chemicals, to save energy, to save water, all of which obviously bring big benefits. Big efficiency drives, um, packaging, logistics, it's all changing in the UK, Marks and Spencers which of course supplies 10% of the UK clothing market, an absolutely phenomenal amount. It's redesigned its lorries so that they've now got more aerodynamic shape to reduce drag and save save petrol. Then Marks & Spencer as well have stepped out of their, their shop and tried to reach into people's homes by including a new lower temperature for laundering clothes on their labels you may well know that around 80% of the impact associated with a frequently washed garment is linked to how it's laundered. And so Marks and Spencer have tried to influence this by getting you to wash at 30 degrees rather than the normal 40 um, people are promoting recycling, there's, um, it's much more um, easy these days to find recycled materials, everything from recycled polyester to some natural materials, and even recycled nylon these days is, is ubiquitous. And then of course there's lots of people who are reworking, reshaping, overprinting, embellishing, doing lots of different things with garments to rework them and save resources. So, we're increasing the efficiency of processing, we're cutting waste and chemicals use, and we're guaranteeing workers better pay and conditions. (coughs) This work is essential, but on its own, it's not enough. Because these things simply don't reach deep enough. They accept the underlying conditions of the fashion and textile industry as given. They stop short of questioning them. They don't ask about the efficacy of the system, who it serves or what its purpose is. Unless we actually reach deeper than the problem-minimizing strategies that I've just outlined, we never actually tackle the most taboo subject in fashion and sustainability, which is of course consumption. And in my view, there is a very severe mismatch between the possibility promised by these sorts of problem-solving approaches and the goal of sustainability that just isn't going to lead to there because they circumvent the core problems. I suggest that the task that we've got ahead of us is to create a future that's not just an extension of the past. It's not just a continuation of what we've been doing so far. But instead, we need a different way of thinking, different sets of priorities to those we've had in the past. Has anyone ever seen these, these globes? It's amazing. Have a look on the web. Actually, it's called Tangible Earth. They're phenomenal. A, um, the Japanese guys developed them. It's a way for you to sort of sense the interconnectedness of the planet. Amazing project. So there is a Buddhist parable of six blind men gathered together. To examine an elephant. When all six have felt the elephant, a wise man said to each, Tell me, blind man, have you seen the elephant? What sort of thing is it? So they variously assert that uh, the elephant is a serpent. That's the person who was feeling its trunk. Or a great wall, the person who was at the body. Or a paintbrush, the person at the tip of the tail. Or maybe a big leathery bird with huge wings, the person who was at the head and the ears, and so on. But knowing only the parts and blind to the whole, they come to blows over their very different and inaccurate conclusions about what the whole thing is. So sustainability issues in fashion are just as multifaceted. While many have described parts of it, few have described its totality. Yet it is the totality and the sustainability of it that is the underlying goal in all that we do. If we truly wish to build towards a more sustainable fashion and textile sector, then it's imperative That we start a dialogue about the interrelated issues, the big picture questions, as well as looking at the practical, pragmatic choices that we make as designers on a daily basis. If we don't, we risk dealing in a very piecemeal fashion with the symptoms of the environmental and social crises, and you never deal with the root causes and when you deal with symptoms two things tend to happen the first is that the underlying problem reasserts itself in ever more challenging ways and it makes it more and more difficult to deal with and the second thing is that you stop trying to change because you're under the illusion that you've done all you need to do that you're there and that's it. So I reckon that what we need to do is develop skills that enable us to do this thing at the same time, which is to have this sense of the detail and also the big picture. Developing that skill and being able to bring those two things to bear on the decisions and the work that we do on a daily basis is for me one of the key skills as we move forward as designers. Also essential is that we create visions of the future. Sometimes it seems that we've forgotten that clothes and fashion is a really key part of our culture. And the pleasure they bring us is absolutely essential to who we we are as human beings. So maybe we now realize that that fashion without sustainability is ignorant. But we've not quite got there yet with realising that sustainability without fashion is sad. Okay, so what is this future? I've been really influenced over the years by an industrial ecologist called John Ehrenfeld, and this is how he describes sustainability. It's about the possibility that we might flourish. So it's not about getting rid of something bad, it's about creating something good. It's not about solving problems, but it's about nurturing possibility. So, John Ehrenfeld tells a story uh, about a drunk who has lost his house keys and he's looking around trying to find the house keys outside, can't find them, can't get in. But the only place he looks is under the streetlight because, of course, that's the only place where the light is shining, so that's the only place he can see. We tend to seek solutions in the same old places because we don't know about other possibilities. But when you seek solutions in the same old places, you build them into the same old ways of working that you've had in the past. And we end up doing more of the same, but perhaps just a bit more efficient. For the educationalist Stephen Sterling, it's the old ways of thinking that blind us to the potential that sustainability has. He says that our fundamental problem is one of inadequate perception. Our perceptions have to change. So there's a really important distinction to be made between what's called first-order change and second-order change. First-order change takes place within accepted boundaries. It leaves basic values unchanged and unexamined. But second-order change transforms these basic values. So it makes us learn something different, but it also, we learn those different things in a new way. And it's part of what Einstein referred to as a shift in consciousness, essential... Because, in his words, we can't solve our problems with the same thinking that created them. So when applied to the industry as a whole, we begin to see that in order to make changes towards sustainability in companies, product lines, the lives of workers, consumers, designers, the industrial system itself has to change. We have to ask questions about the goals and the rules of the industry. We have to ask those questions that actually very few people are prepared to pose, let alone answer, like who benefits from the current setup? Who does it serve? When you ask these really big questions, you're effectively doing some systems design, which is where a lot of the work that I do now tends to sit. And when you ask questions about the rules and the goals of the industry and the purpose of it, you open up big possibilities for change. And this is where I think fashion for sustainability is happening and is really possible. And it's all based, in my view, on design. If you resolve a problem, you accept the conditions that created it and you seek a compromise, acceptable to everybody involved. But if you dissolve a problem, you idealise, you don't optimise. What would be best over the long term? And you effectively change the underlying system so the problem disappears. So I'm going to show you loads of different images of different projects, products, now and I think effectively they all build up to showing us what is possible it's a real shift away from thinking of constraints and controls sustainability is this thing that I've got to do in addition to everything else so it's shift away from that sort of thinking to one where you see it as a as a creative practice in itself So there's lots of qualities that I look for in um, sustainability projects and these things are things that are lively, uh, creative, connected, integrative, transformative, democratic, inclusive, participatory. So I suppose I've clustered these things that I'm going to show you in three rough categories. The first are things fashion, concepts, ideas, products, services that bring us closer to nature. The second, that bring us closer to each other and connect us more with each other as human beings. And the third are things that, in a way, elicit more ethical behaviour, that encourage awareness and reflexivity. And they guide us away from blind consumption towards reflective competence. Okay, so some pieces that connect us with nature. The first is a biodegradable t shirt. Most of you may think that most t shirts biodegrade anyway. You just stick them in the compost heap and they'll disappear. Well, of course, um, synthetic fibers biodegrade over about a million years, so they aren't readily biodegradable at all. And while natural materials will break down, the chemicals that they are dyed, finished, processed, bleached with um, generally have lots of toxic components that, when they do break down, uh, pollute the soil. This t shirt is different. This t shirt has been da- designed specifically to break down harmlessly and safely. So I'm sure you'll all be aware of the work of uh, Mike Donner and Browngart, the guys who wrote Cradle to Cradle. Have anybody read it? Okay, so. Oh, a third of you. Okay, so Montana and Brown got over the years have developed lots of ideas of how we can redesign the industrial system. I suppose a little like I was just talking about. And one of the things they did was develop some products that were examples of that. And they started by looking at a furnishing fabric. And then the next sort of range of products that ended up being developed were t-shirts. So in their work, they looked at the 4,500 chemicals that were on the list of a dye and chemicals company that was used very frequently to, to dye fabrics for textiles. And they went through that list and analysed all the chemicals to see which chemicals had toxins in them, which had carcinogens, which had mutagens, and which effectively would inhibit safe and harmless biodegradation. So of this list of four and a half thousand, only sixteen were deemed safe. So their finishing fabric and this product amongst others are dyed and processed only with those sixteen chemicals. But of course there's lots of other things that had to be innovated to to make this t-shirt because you can't sew a biodegradable t-shirt, which is made from cotton by the way, with polyester thread because the polyester thread itself won't biodegrade. And um, when I was speaking to the company that developed this they said at the time they couldn't get hold of cotton thread so somebody had to develop some cotton thread before they could bring this product to the market. Then they had to redesign labels and redesign loads of different aspects to make a t-shirt that would fully biodegrade. Then a different take something like a local product. So this is made on um, an island in Scotland um, in the north of the UK. The sheep that live there um, are rare breed sheep and the farmers were struggling to find um, any income and they were struggling to stay on the land. And then somebody had the bright idea of beginning to spin the sheep. And now what we have is a fully accredited very high-end worsted fabric that is being used for suiting in Savile Row, and what you see here is a product that's that's aesthetic, reflects the character of the sheep. You can see they don't dye anything; they just they just blend various um, of the different coloured sheep that they have, and produce these really beautiful fabrics. And this was um, a shirt designed by students at California College of Arts. Uh, Effectively, it's a no-waste shirt. So he redesigned pattern pieces in a way to use every scrap of material, selvage to selvage. So what you see is a garment of really sort of twisted proportions, where the arms and the cuffs are all different sizes because he was, he was changing the proportions. Actually, so a new aesthetic emerged that reflected zero waste. Actually, there's quite a lot of this work going on in Australia, which. Um, there is some of it going on in the UK too and in America but I have noticed, particularly in Australia, this seems to resonate. Um, a different project, another student project was to develop the concept of modularity so you can add and subtract pieces to this dress and make just a top or make a skirt, make a dress and change it as you will. The idea of course here is that you could just sell extra pieces and add to it as you want and so you get a very different design and you wouldn't need to buy the whole thing new again. Once again, it's just building a sense of efficiency and maybe actually more of an active role for the wearer so that the wearer's not just sort of sticking it on and not really thinking about what they're doing but wearing it in a different way. Okay, so the next category is garments that help us to be a bit more human, to connect more with each other. So this was another student project also from California College of Arts. It was a short jacket that was designed with loops and places to feed some finger knitting through. Finger knitting, I'm sure everyone's done it, it's so easy. And the point of this was, so that you could begin to develop a way to store on your garment some of the things that was like a creative practice for you. So this girl was knitting some of these these wonderful finger knitted tubes on the bus, in taxis, she was doing it with her sister and her daughter and it's this sense that actually the act of creating connects us with someone else and it becomes a decorative element of the jacket. Oh, this is a project I did um, almost 10 years ago now and it was, um, I suppose it was a research project in a sense developed to try to work out the way that fashion relates to our human needs and the girl who's modeling it actually um, designed this piece. I asked her what sort of thing, um, well she was responding to a brief that we set about, about needs as I just said and the need that she was responding to was the need for affection. And she said that she really liked when she wore like a mo, fluffy mohair top that people would sort of come and stroke and say, oh. And she really enjoyed the attention that she got when that happened. So she ended up designing this piece which had cutaways and slits so that people could put their hand in the small of her back, stroke her arm. It doesn't work for me, but me, it worked. it worked for her. But the point there was that she was connecting with others in different ways and she was trying to uncover what it was about a garment that... That connects with your needs. So, you probably know the work of Otto von Busch. Um, these are his reform trousers that, for me, really, uh, well, pretty much all his work is all about connecting to each other and, I suppose, to what it is to be human. And to swift, switching away from a very passive engagement with clothes to a much more of an active one where we make. So, for those of you who don't know his work, he doesn't produce collections of garments, he produces um, a collection of, of ideas or um, skills effectively. So he produces a book with different plan, plans and patterns for you to follow to make and rework garments perhaps that you buy in a second hand store into new pieces. And um, yeah, his work has a Well, I suppose a real sort of democratic and participatory element to it, but it's also very subversive, really sort of twisting the fashion system on its head. This was a piece um, produced in the Netherlands by Drew Design. It's a t shirt here as a turban, 10 times too big, and they claim 10 times more useful. But the reason why I've included it is because every time you wear it, you have to style it. You have to put it on, you have to wear it differently. Maybe you get a belt, maybe you wear it around your hair, maybe around your shoulders. And the point again here is that actually we're beginning to shift people away from just accepting blithely what they have in their wardrobe to being a much more active and creative and responsive role to clothes. Perhaps my favorite category, garments that ask, yeah, so what are you doing this for? So this is another um, piece of my work. Um, As I mentioned earlier, about 80% of the environmental impact associated with, with frequently washed clothes is linked to laundering so how you wash them how you dry them how you iron them how you care for them actually has a really huge influence on its overall environmental profile and compared to that use phase as it's called the impact of how you of what it's made from and how it's disposed is pretty tiny and so I kept a laundry diary for about six months, and every garment that I tossed into the laundry basket I did a sketch and noted where the dirt lay, why was I throwing it away. Actually, in fact, the process of checking to see why you're throwing it there makes you think, oh, I don't need to wash it after all, which is quite an interesting process. But So I ended up laminating a plastic bag, just a cheap, thin plastic bag that I'd brought some vegetables home in, onto the front. Um, around the cuffs and the elbows from where sort of on the desk, opened up the armholes on both sides, so there 's lots of ventilation and i 've never i 've worn the top from, for well eight years ish maybe not seven years, and i 've never laundered it ever um, and people are always thinking oh that 's really disgusting and it is actually pretty disgusting it doesn 't smell too bad because I put a put it in a steamy shower room to refresh it from time to time but in a way okay, it's a concept piece, it's a one off but what it shows us it shows us that with a very small intervention with a heat press (coughs) and a plastic bag that actually you can reduce the environmental impact of a a garment by 80% which is phenomenal so don't give up hope (laughs) so this is a a dress that you buy, um, white, and then over time you can take it back and they will dye it progressively darker and darker and darker shades. And I love this idea that over time this gets richer, more beautiful, the hue is deeper, and I suppose so your bond with it grows. And that sort of connection um, is something that is... Absolutely essential that we design for. And it's almost the, the, the flip of what we experience today. When you've had something for a long time, you sometimes think, oh yeah, that's just a bit dirty, it looks a bit tired, it looks a bit sad. And this is the reverse. It gets more beautiful, more enchanting, more desirable. So in the UK, there's a really small knitwear company called Keep and Share and they make shareable knitwear. And they started from the premise that to make things shareable, they had to be sort of uni size. because if I'm going to share it with my sister or with my mum, or my friends, we've all got to be able to wear it. And so all of the pieces that Keep and Share produce are, um, are designed to have very few anchor points. So some pieces fit around the wrist, or sort of around the top of the arm, or across the shoulders, and the rest is sort of loose and flowing. So there are quite a few sort of um, wraps and shrugs and cardigans with that, which don't uh, fasten at the front. So they're loose, flowing, very geometric shapes. So the point here is that the whole of the premise, the whole of the business, and all the pieces in there is all designed around trying to facilitate garments that could be used by more than one person and of course therefore you hope fewer resources are consumed. In the US uh, Alabama Shannon has been working for quite a long time now doing the most exquisite couture pieces entirely produced by hand stitching. So Natalie Shannon who um, had been in New York and all various other places in the States, returned to her home state of Alabama. And her, her grandmother was part of uh, one of those traditional quilting or knitting circles. So people were making the most exquisite things, groups of women, pretty much 100% women, who sit around, chat, and sew. And so she created a label that used that same process. Those stitches, uh, a reverse applique technique that's pretty much made her own. And the pieces are exquisite, incredibly expensive because of all the hand labour. But there is something about that finishing touch um, that makes it really stand apart. But also its connection with a very specific area of the American South and with that heritage is an absolutely key part of what Alabama Shannon do. Okay, so at the beginning of the lecture, Tina said that um, I'd just come from Sydney um, because at UTS um, they've just got a new exhibition that's opened called Fashioning Now. I don't know whether any of you ever go up to Sydney, but it's on there for four weeks, maybe worth a look. Um, But I've just got some new work that's showing um, there, and I'm just going to briefly just talk about it. it was a real departure for me because it wasn't like any work that I'd done before. But about a year ago, uh, I got a new job, this job I have at London College of Fashion. And it was such a, um, a privilege to be in an academic institution again after being, I'd been working with industry for five years. And suddenly I had an opportunity to apply for research grants. So it felt like, oh, money was available. And so I set out um, to embark on a project that I'd been thinking about for many years, and it was a project that was trying to explore how people, regular people, the people in, on the street, well not street people, but you know what I mean, normal people, how people use clothes. And I wanted to record and honour the ingenuity that went on in people's homes, people's bedrooms, wardrobes, with their clothes. And my feeling was that there was a lot of inventiveness that we didn't know about. A lot of great ideas, a lot of activity. And there was potential in each of these things that were going on to to help us with some of the problems that we face as a global community. I was sure that there was some wisdom there. But of course no one takes the time to record it. So I set up fashion shoots um, in two very provincial parts of, of England. And I put out an open call to the public to participate. So I put notices in newsagents' windows, in local newspapers, I talked on the local radio, Um, I went to see local crafting groups. Because I was interested to find out more about the clothes people wear and the way they wear them. I suppose I was looking for sustainable prototypes of sustainable ways of living. So what happened was, 50 people came to these two shoots, and a whole mix of folk. This guy was 82. Uh, we had some uh, some younger people in their 20s, and everybody brought along the most amazing things. This guy, over 40 years, has been working and reworking a waistcoat into various jumpers and other things. It's remarkable. He was. He was remarkable, believe me. Um, and so it started as a tight waistcoat that had been given to him. He said he got a bit fatter, so he put this panel <laughs> in the back. He knitted it, inserted the panel in the back. Ooh, oops. About ten years later, he decided that he needed some sleeves. So he put the sleeves on, and then about five years later, he added the waistband. And then he grew a bit bigger, and he couldn't fasten it at the front, so he added... Latchets, he described them as. I've never heard that before. Latchets across the front. And then he added a sequin on each latchet. Um, this was a, a denim jacket bought in the 1970s by a guy who was a punk. He sewed the badges on himself and that was his granddad's army sergeant stripes that he added to the sleeve. But he brought it along because he'd never laundered it. And I one of the things I asked for were garments that had never been laundered. And only after a conversation with him did I realize that people don't launder things because the process of washing clothes washes away something. It's a memory, it's a smell, it's a, it's a, it's a sensation. Or in his case, it was his political stance. Believe me, he wasn't a punk now. He had chinos on. and uh, um, But but when he put it on, he began to get the attitude. His shoulders went back and he was, he, he really began to affect how he used to be. And I had this real, also this real sense that, actually, generally, forgive me, men in the audience, that it's men that find it much easier to have clothes that are never laundered. So there's a real opportunity. <laughs> it's almost a badge of honour. I know it's not the same for everyone, so that was a no-broad-brush statement. So, so as I bring... Um, this presentation to a close, there's a few things that I would just like to to um, reiterate. The first is that we absolutely must continue to minimize the problems we face by doing things like fiber substitution, recycling, etc, etc. But what I'm really sure that we must do at the same time is begin a process of inquiry, of asking questions, of having a conversation about the direction of the industry as a whole. This involves some very searching questions, and you may feel that you're not able to answer them, or even to ask them, maybe I'm too small, I'm, I'm not significant enough. But I think that this is where it's got to start. Perhaps one of their most significant questions is the West's, addiction to consumption, and how we can reconcile that with the fashion system. So I suppose what I've tried to do is offer some really tentative ideas about how I would like to see the industry shaped. Um, But I'm really conscious that the things that I've shown you, which do challenge the rhythms of fashion, and the fashion processes and some finished products. But what they do actually also do is they effectively sidestep the big high street, large scale issues that everybody always goes, aha, but how can you make those small concept products or those small pieces work on the high street? In fact, it's the economic, the business, the strategic questions that are the difficult ones, that the big ones to answer. And historically, at least, designers have the least interest in working with those, and I'm in that category. Yet, for sustainability to be a genuine alternative, we do need to be able to ask these questions. We need to skill ourselves in that sort of language. We need to open our minds and read in different ways, look in different ways at what's around us. So, our next next step, my next step, is to move out of the very safe sustainability territory of some of the things that I've shown you, and actually to explore what it might mean for large-scale production. Yet, getting big, going to scale with these issues, these things that I've been talking about requires, paradoxically, that we start small. So a fabulous author, Nabil Hamdi, has written, in order to do something big, start small, but start where it counts. And that, for me, is the absolute essence of what we have to do. So Nabil Hamdi's book called Small Change has lots of great examples in it. And um, forgive those people, Tina particularly, who's heard this story before, but I'm going to roll it out again. Um, so perhaps um, a, a classic example of small change from Hamdi's book. So Hamdi is a, a development practitioner. He works to, um, to promote uh, change in very poor communities and he was in South America in a slum and he was asked to go and observe and see what sort of changes could happen to improve the lives of the people who lived there and he stood and he watched and then he made one recommendation and that one recommendation that he made was to change the location of the bus stop away from the edge of the slum To in the centre of it. So we got agreement from the bus company and the local authority and they moved the bus stop into the centre. That one small act had a huge influence because by doing that suddenly the bus actually went into the middle of the slum and what in the slum what they were producing at the time was they were catching lots of fish so the people in the slum were going and taking the fish into the town, so they'd have to catch the bus in. But suddenly word got out that now you could get a bus and you could get right into the slum. And So if you wanted the freshest, the best fish, people started coming from the city into the slum to get there first. And then some of the local boys thought, aha, uh-huh, people are coming in. Maybe we can sell them fruit and vegetables at the same time. So they set up fruit and vegetable carts. And so a thriving food industry or business started about that. And then a few enterprising other young boys thought, aha, so I bet we can set up a bicycle delivery service. So they got the bicycles out and started taking the food from the market to people's homes. And then the next thing that happened was a bicycle repair shop to repair the delivery boys' bicycles, and then a barber shop to fix the hair of all the people who were sitting around, and so on. So you can see with a very small intervention this huge chain reaction occurred. So, I would like to say to you, what you need to do if you want to affect change towards sustainability is to find the bus stop in your practice. What is it that you can do, what small thing can you do to make a change that will have this ripple effect? Okay, look at that for timing. Oh, six o'clock, seven o'clock, thank you.